Today's episode of Speak LA, the podcast is sponsored by Actors Connection. Before we begin, one of the things we most often hear from our listeners is how hard it is to find an agent. If this is something that you are struggling with, go to ispeakla.com and download our free agent guide now. There is no shame in not having an agent, but we really want to help you get one. So go to ispeakla.com and grab your free agent guide today. Jen. How are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. Yeah, you too. You too. Today's going to be great. Winter Miller. Yeah. I'm very excited to be talking to Winter Miller, an incredible playwright. Yeah. A New Yorker. A New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because uh, she's one of my students' favorite playwrights as well. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so this is actually, um, she's written plays like No One Is Forgotten in right. Darfur. Right. Play um, Spare Rib. So just a lot of very meaningful work. And um, I know that I know that our listeners are going to love it. And so will my students, which is always. Yeah, 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 yeah. And always just so great as an actor to hear from. Um, a writer, you know, and today a playwright yeah. and um, just kind of hear their perspective of actors and how they work with actors or how they think of actors when they're writing. Always so helpful, I think, to get that perspective. Yeah, the, the specificity. Yes. I feel like we always talk about this when we have a writer on the show, the specificity mm-hmm. of their mm-hmm. words. It's going to be, it's always intriguing. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, well, Jen, before we yeah. we this very exciting podcast that I okay. can't wait for. I always love to hear a little bit about what you like about LA. Well, as you know, there's so many things I love about LA, but actually I was, I was thinking, um, I was thinking yesterday about, I, I don't know why this popped into my head, but I was thinking about when we had Sherry Moon Zombie on the show and um, when we asked her, you know, one word to describe LA and she chose the word free yeah. And I, I just, that really has stuck with me because um, it, it is so free and it is, or it is a place that, that makes one feel so free. And I remember when I first came to LA, I think when I, you know, first, first, first came, I like so many people came and then left and then came again. But um, when I was just barely 18 years old, it did just have this feeling for me, Los Angeles did of you know, you can, you can just be anybody, you can do anything. I mean, there is such sort of an openness and a freedom and an acceptance in LA that I think is yeah. is so beautiful. There really is. And I yeah. love that. Free. Free. I know. <laughs> it's perfect. How old were you when you moved to New York? 22. Did you know anyone here? Yes. What part of New York did you live in when you first got there? Upper East Side, but really at my girlfriend's in Chelsea. <laughs> what was your first job in New York? NBC Page. What was your initial impression of New York? Busy. Mm. How many years of living in New York did it take before you felt like it was your home? Dunno. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you had to sum up LA in one word, what would it be? Shirtless Runyon Canyon. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's three words and I cheated, but. (laughs) Shirtless Runyon Canyon. I love it. Winter. Welcome. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's really, we've been really looking forward to this. Um, And I'd love to start with kind of the beginning, how you got your start. What made you decide to be a playwright? Did you always know you wanted to be a playwright? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I was thinking just as a sort of a format breaker that instead of using words to answer the questions, I would just uh, draw shapes in the air. Do you think that will work for your listeners? Perfect. Some, some... Why, don't, why don't you draw the shapes and then we'll interpret them as we're drawing them for our listeners. That's even better. And That's then we can better. go in that direction. Um, you know, got my start is sort of like a, you know, where to start begin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did not always want to be a playwright. I did want to be an actor. And um, I got some, inc- I got a mixed message of encouragement, um, but lots of encouragement throughout high school and college. Um, and then I moved to New York and I just had no sense of the business side of it. And mm-hmm. um, I never was a triple threat. I was like maybe a single threat. And mm-hmm. then I looked around and realized that I didn't feel that confident in, in my single threadedness. Um <laughs> But also based on the way that I look, which is, um, I mean, for acting standards and for the 90s, androgynous. And so when I did start trying out for roles in New York, I was getting cast as um, like Mamilius in The Winter's Tale or The Clown or The Page in Salome. Like it was just like these sort of boy roles, like the roles that were going to be open to me were going to be the quirky best friend. Mm. I yeah. I looked really young, so I was never going to be a mom. I didn't look um, like the sort of conventional long-haired pretty girl, so I was never going to be the ingenue. And they certainly weren't, weren't going to let me be the boyfriend. So there were very few roles that I could kind of find my way into. And so uh, I started writing. I wrote a screenplay for myself. Um it was going to be called straight, no chaser. And it was just going to be about like the poor choices I was making in dating straight women. (laughs) (laughs) But it did help when I, uh, I saw a friend of mine who I'd gone to acting camp with when we were really young and he was in the playwriting program at Columbia. And I, he was a really good writer. Um, In fact, he's, still a very good writer. His name is Micah Schraft and he uh, does lots of great film and TV stuff. And I saw Micah be a playwright and I thought, Oh, it's a sausage factory. Like you come in, like you used to be an actor and you go through this program and you come out and you're a really good writer. Maybe I can apply. So for Columbia, you had to hand in a play and I didn't have a play. So I just took out all the ints and the exts in my screenplay and handed it in as my play. Wow. Uh, and was very surprised to get in and then had to learn how to playwright very fast. Did you find that it was easier for you coming as an actor, understanding action and 
objective and all of the the stuff you need to know as an actor. I mean, I have nothing to compare it to in terms of was it easier than the person next to me who had been writing or who had been in advertising? Like, I don't know, but I can say as a teacher that as I watch actors come into my class who have never written before, that when they start to write, they understand things that no one else understands. And the way I've always, and we had to read an actor prepares in, in grad school. And it was clear that all of that stuff, all of the moment to moment work was that you need in acting was exactly the same for writing. The only difference, which I was relieved to find is that you do that work in your bedroom or your living room or, or you know, wherever you're writing and mean to make that sound like a boudoir fantasy, <laughs> but but you still, you have to be able to drop into the feelings. You have to be able to as if into the feelings of the characters you're writing who are not you and are you. And so um, actors make great playwrights. Did you, um, was the transition from actor to writer a gradual one? Like, did you, did you immediately when you got into that program think this is where I belong? Writing is what I want to do, or was was there a sort of long process where you still thought, okay, I'm an actor and a writer, or, or maybe you still feel that way? Um, no, I. So the other thing that I was doing when I moved to New York is I got into journalism. So I was doing journalism to pay the bills and to just kind of feel like I was doing something. Um, and then it took me a couple years, and then I started auditioning and then I took a job as a waitress. Like I was trying the hats on properly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, uh, the thing about Columbia is we were told as soon as I arrived, all these rules, like don't do anything outside of this program. Oh, like you're an actor. Don't do it. Like I was in an improv troupe. They were like, don't do that. Don't, don't do your journalism job. Like they, and not knowing anything, I just said, okay, but like they said, don't don't keep a journal. Like everything should go into. So I was following the rules. So I was not anything because I was not yet a writer, and I was not, you know, in journalism, and I was not acting. So I was just someone who was um, entering the sausage machine, and I did not think that I belonged there. I thought it had been a fluke that I'd gotten in. I thought I'd gotten in off the coattails of my friend because it had been such an easy process to get in. I thought this, this is a mistake. So I spent the whole first year of being there thinking this is a mistake. Mm. Um, So uh, I didn't, you know, I don't know when it was that I sort of began to think I was a writer, but it was quite a ways after uh, grad school. And yeah. I think that's so interesting. I, I've I've often felt that too, where when something is easy or it comes in in a two in a way that is an an easy format, it's like, well, if it was so easy, then I must not have really earned it or deserved it, or I shouldn't have necessarily gotten it. And it takes a while to sort of embrace that. Um, I would love to talk to you a little bit about kind of what you mentioned um, in terms of feeling like there wasn't a place for you really as an actor and then you writing this screenplay, which then became the play that you got into Columbia with because your, your themes vary so much and your, and your different, the different plays that you write. 
And they're all so poignant. Every subject matter that you pick, especially for me as a woman reading them, it touches me in different ways. Um, and I'm sure that so many people feel that way as well when they watch your work or they read your work is that because there's such um, fascinating themes. And I'd love to know, um, because we often say to, to people who are actors, we say, you know, one of the problems with acting is you don't always get to play things that you really want to be playing, or you don't always get the roles that really inspire mm-hmm. you. So right. And it seems like you, you did that in the very first screenplay that you wrote. And then now you've picked these themes that are just so phenomenal and fascinating. So I just love to know, how do you do that? How do you, how do you choose your themes? How do you, you know, does it, how does it come to you? And um, how do you pick those directions? Sure. I mean, obviously the adage of write what you know was where I began. And Mm -hmm. so I was the first play or screenplay was about the relationships I was having and how absurd it was. Um, But, and the next play was about my family. And the next play after that was just kind of being, um, young and queer and trying to, I wanted to answer the question in the play, is sexuality biologically determined? Because I was trying to figure out if the women I'd been with who loved me and were with me, but then were with men after, were they, I was thinking of them as being cowards Mm. because they, you know, they'd be like, I love you, but and the butt always seemed to be related to the expectations of society. And I was so angry at what I perceived as being like, where's your, like, where's your daring? Why aren't you following your heart? What is that? And, um, and so I, so I was wondering, like, for me, is it just that I was born this way and I'm just following my heart? And is it that they were not born this way? And, they followed their heart, but they got to a point where it was like, no, this isn't me. And so I just wanted to know, is there some kind of biological determination? Obviously I cannot answer that question, but I wanted to ask it because I didn't know the answer. And I wanted to get to a point of forgiveness of not seeing the people that I loved as cowards, but as seeing them as whoever they were. Um, and so that, that the journey of that play and that play is called the penetration play is about, um, navigating that, you know, two friends in which one is clearly in love with the other and the other is very much on the fence about what to do with that. Um, and so that felt like a very personal play and, you know, I can recognize myself in all of the characters and I don't, you know, I don't even pretend that that's not true uh in terms of how much of myself i put in there the plot uh never happened i never um seduced my best friend's mother <laughs> but uh <laughs> i'm not saying that people shouldn't <laughs> um the next play that i was working on after the penetration play uh was what became in darfur and it came about because i was working at the New York Times as a news clerk for op-ed columnist Nicholas Kristof, which was my job after graduation. I needed, obviously, to pay bills. And I was still very interested in journalism. And I loved I loved that job. But what Nick was doing is he was writing about the genocide in Darfur. And he had information about 
what was going on on the ground earlier than almost anyone. Um, you know, some other reporters had it and some, you know, international folks had it, but people like us had no idea of what was unfolding and how, um, how big and how awful it was. And so there was a contest that was held by the Guthrie Theater and the Playwright Center in Minneapolis called the Two-Headed Challenge. And you had to submit a plot uh, and, and, and another head. Um, you had to have somebody outside of journalism be your partner. And I asked Nick Kristoff if he would be my other head because I thought he's, he's well-known. He's won a Pulitzer. Like, maybe I can ride his coattails. And I had to reassure Nick that he did not have to write a play. Um, and I said, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is open your Rolodex and let me be able to talk to people at Doctors Without Borders, et cetera, to be able to ask them and interview them. Um, and uh, and I think I waited until later to lay this one on him, but that he needed to take me with him. Um, wow. But so I... The, so the proposal won the contest, and then I had a commission to write the play. Wow. If I did not have a commission to write the play, I never would have written the play. I never would have sent it in. And if not, I would have bailed any number of times. But um, <laughs> they, they, you know, they said, this is like, you, you won, <laughs> go do it. And so I used that, I leveraged that with Nick to say, take me to Chad. And he, you know, he said yes. And then he recanted and was like, I can't take you. It's really dangerous. And he got very specific. He was like, it's a suicide mission. I'm going because I write a column for the New York times, not to be, you know, pejorative here, but you don't, mm. <laughs> there's, there's not worth, uh, it's not worth your life. And I was like, I know, but I have this play to write. And I, and I'm, and I have to see what is like there. I can't just keep reading this. I have to know, like, what does the earth feel like? What is, what's the dust like? All of that stuff. And so, um, I just wore him down, which I was able to do because he had to see me every day. Um, <laughs> and I didn't, and you know, and I, I didn't take no for an answer. So I went and then of course I'd gone and then knowing everything that I knew and everything that I'd seen, I still had to write the play because I promised. And it was the only thing I could think of to do. Like, how was I going to tell the story of what, what I had seen and tell more people about it? And so I felt like I was sort of doing a service in the way that I could. Nick was obviously going to reach thousands of people and be very important, but this was my corner. And so I was going to do the best I could with it. But I never would have written a play like that if I didn't have institutional support and if I didn't have the support of the person who was running the center at that time, um, a person named Pete Carl, who then mentored me through the writing of the play, you know, with this idea of you can, you know, keep going. But every step of the way, I was like, I, I shouldn't be writing this. I'm not African. I'm not Darfuri, I, you know, all of it. But the thing that kept me going was, I had information that no one else had. So I wouldn't write that play today because other people have that and they can tell that story. But at that time I had something really, really valuable and I wanted to do something with it. Um, but from, so from that, I then learned that I wasn't someone who just wrote dark comedies. 
that there was more to me. And I got interested in looking at that more. And that enabled me to then say, okay, I want to ask questions about the world. And so I would see things in the world, wonder why they were that way. And then I would put it into a play. Um, so that became uh, really, that was the right combination for me. It, my sort of intellectual curiosity with the way that I like to create, it made me feel like I had uh, a purpose to what I was doing because I was asking a question. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a play should ever answer a question, but I do think a play should ask a question and that the audience should leave wondering what their uh, response to it is. Wow. I, that Everything you just said, I feel like is like a masterclass in writing because you, you touched on, um, you know, re- how to research something, how to sort of best use a connection you might have, um, how to, um, you know, pick a theme. And I, and I think my favorite thing you said, and, and for, for actors listening, um, to this, who, who are interested in writing, which I think, you know, nowadays most are, I, I love that idea because we all hear about write what you know, you know, we all, we all know that, um, and have, yeah. have learned that, but, but, but the idea of write what you maybe don't know, you know, write what you have a question about, right. Write something that you're, um, you know, that you're trying to figure out. I, I think that's such a great and and less intimidating way um, to approach writing because write what you know. You know, somebody might think, well, I don't really know what I know. I might I might not know anything well enough to write about it. You know, but to say pose a question and then try to answer that question in the writing, I think is such a such an amazing way um, to approach something. So. Thanks for that. I love that. Sure. Thank you. I think that people can, I mean, I think the other reason to write is because you see something in the world and you don't like the way it is and you want to expose what that thing is and, uh, you know, perhaps present an alternative or unmask it for what it is. So I think you can look at injustice and, and, and Mm. from there, if your, if your fire is lit by that, um, you know, for me, you know, I've written about, uh, I've written about rape. I've written about abortion. Like it's things that I want to see living in the world differently, mm-hmm. whether it's that I want people talking about it and the destigmatization so that we can just be like, look, this is what's happening. Let's be honest about it. All, all those things. But then beyond that, what else is there? You know, so it starts from a place of this is something I see that is dangerous to uh to humanity and how can i shine a light on it so that we can engage with it and that people you know who are uh, experiencing responses to it cannot feel so alone Mm. right so i take very seriously the i'm pretty sure it was jfk but it's probably someone else who said it and he stole it but (laughs) the idea of um comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that is what I want my place to do. If you need comfort and connection, I want you to find that in my play because something rings true for you and you feel less alone in the world. If you have lived a life in which you've not noticed that any of these horrible injustices are happening, then I want you to look at it and 
and have it, you know, prick your conscience and have you say, okay, now what? Now I know. I can't say I don't know because now I know what am I going to do about it? And people may not do anything about it, but uh, I've done my best in saying, you know, poking them like you should at least know about this. Mm -hmm. I hope you do something about it, but know that it's there. Um, I love to ask you, you mentioned that when you were writing in Defra, you had moments where you were saying to yourself, am I the right person to write this play? And I know that I'm the right person to write it because I have access to this information that not other people have. Um, I think there can be in the creative process, a lot of fear in terms of expressing your voice in any in any aspect of it, you know, as an actor, as a writer, all of those uh, places. I mean, as a human, fear just exists. Um, and I'm just wondering, when you approach these topics um, so bravely, are you do you do you have moments where you're afraid to write them? You know, where I always think of that creative process when I talk to my students about it is it's like you're jumping off of a cliff and you have to figure out what your parachute is, you know, and that's like understanding how to analyze text. You know, you just, you're not jumping into creativity without anything around you. But I know sometimes when you speak on subjects that are not subjects that are talked about, like abortion, for example, that isn't something that a lot of people, um, that is such a, you know, a, um, I, I don't even know the right word for it, but it's such a hot topic in our, especially in our country. Um, do you, do you, do you feel fear when you're about to dive into a subject like that? And what do you do uh, with that fear? How do you approach it? Um, I wouldn't say that I feel fear at the beginning of approaching something. I would say the fear comes in when I think, what am I doing here? Why, why did I think I could write this? Who am I to write this? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing, like a fear of, um, you know, uh, whether it's appropriation or humili- humiliation, like something that is external, that is about approval and is not about the actual work. Like I'm not, uh, there's nothing I'm afraid to write, but what I am afraid of is not serving it well enough. And so um, to counter that, what I do is a lot of research um, so that the idea is there. I know what I'm writing about. And then if I need to learn more, then I go and learn more. And, uh, you know, I ask people a lot of questions um, in sort of an interview style so that I can know, I can at least get more of a sense of what I don't know. Um, But for instance, in my play Spare Rib, which is about um, abortion throughout history and right now, there were some things that I began writing it knowing that I wanted to write about and uh, a style of writing that I know I was very much inspired by uh, Maria Irene Fornes and Carol Churchill. And I was really into the fact that in Top Girls, in the opening scene in Act One, Uh, It's a birthday party and it's all these women throughout history. And we have no idea why they're all in the same room. They're all interrupting each other, but they're all talking about feminism, but it's, it's riveting, but you sit there and you don't know as an audience member, why am I here? Mm -hmm. And you get to know it throughout the course of the play, 
what it was setting up. And it does this beautiful thing of going from the macro women throughout history. And then act two is, uh, you know, women in the workplace and act three is women in the home, mothers and daughters and, uh, you know, and sisters. So it goes to this, it goes from the macro to this pinpoint of um, the most intimate domesticity. And so I wanted to see what I could do with those elements that I admired in those plays. So I wanted to take, uh, I was looking at Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party and and researching who some of those plates are. Um, and uh, if anyone's listening and they've never heard of or seen The Dinner Party, it's an exhibition by Judy Chicago and it's all these ceramic plates of women um, and it's their vaginas. And it is absolutely um, delightful and giddy and um, and powerful. Uh, and you can see it online or you can go to the Brooklyn Museum and see it when COVID ends. But I wanted to have the, the history of the fact that women have always been giving abortions. Women were always in control of what our reproductive lives were until men took over, until it became medicalized. And once it became medicalized, then it became illegal. And so I wanted the breadth of history of people who were doing things before what we have now. But I also wanted to include what is life like now. And so I looked at different periods. And one of the periods I'm focusing on in the play is Chicago in the late 60s, early 70s with the group The Janes, because it was a group of women who were referring other women to abortions and then realized that they could uh, get a provider and help women get abortions safely, and then realized that they could also perform the abortions, not as doctors. And they did. And throughout their time, they helped 11,000 women safely get abortions. And so I was really moved by what that time in history was like and wanted to explore that dramatically. But I also was really moved with what are what are doctors doing now? So what I didn't know when I started out to write the play is that I would also be writing about the perspective of an abortion provider and what kind of everyday stigma providers face. Um, you know, you get on an airplane and someone's like, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm an obstetrician. Oh, you deliver babies? Yes. And I also perform abortions. Mm. Um and 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 then having to worry about their safety you know whether it's like that the conversation is over <laughs> or that someone is like very upset by them but it's a, it it often changes and so there's all these people who are providing abortions and are isolated by our society which says that's a bad thing to do and on top of that their lives are threatened and on top of that um you know, there, there are fewer and fewer clinics and the laws make it more and more difficult. So I wanted to have that exist in the play without having it be some sort of didactic lesson of, you know, blocking abortion is bad. And where for me, the fear came in was that uh, I was at a writing residency at a place called Blue Mountain Center, which is in the Adirondacks and is like, the best place on earth. Well, one of them, it's just, it feels like a very holy place. Um, they invite a lot of activist artists to come. And so it just, they're good stewards of the land that they have. Um, 
and it feels rich that way. I was lost about what to do and I was in over my head and there was this big body of water. And so I jumped into the water and I just asked the water if it would hold me. Just, I've got a lot on my mind, hold me. And so I was in the water just floating. And as I was floating, I was thinking, is this what it's like to be a fetus? Like, is this, you know, and I was like stretching out and thinking like, is this like, am I in the womb? And what would that feel like? And just sort of enjoying like the, the feeling of being held and the, the strangeness of wondering what it's like to be um, a fetus or a baby or uh, anything in a womb and, uh, and to be held. And so when I, as soon as I got out of the water, I thought, Oh, I think this play has talking fetuses. Um, let me explore that. And so I started writing these monologues, um, which are some of my favorite pieces of writing. Like I have a monologue of a 42 year old, sorry, 42 week old fetus um, who is refusing to be born. Mm-hmm. And all of the things that she wants to do in the womb, um, it, she wants to be able to buy beer. She wants to be able to not pay taxes. She wants to be able to vote or not. She wants to get a nose job where her nose is made bigger. She wants to, you know, she just has a list of demands and she's like, I'm not coming out unless you can meet these demands. Um, and I, you know, I think it ends with her saying like, you know, chewing your food is disgusting. My goal weight is six pounds. So she's just this very adamant being. And I, you know, and, and adorable, like all of the fetuses are so lovable. And I thought, this is dangerous because the reason I'm writing this play is the semantics of how we talk about abortion. The reason I got into this was because if someone is going to have an abortion, people say, well, that's a fetus. And if someone is going to carry the fetus to term, they're like, that's a baby. And I wanted to address the fact that all of these things are true and that what is in the womb is living. It is alive. At some point there's personhood. And for me, that's birth, you know, but the way that we talk about it is, is in these very stark terms that don't get at the truth of it, which is that, yes, this is a being that is living, but it's also like a plant is living and we don't say, oh, that's planticide. Mm-hmm. Although if you were in my apartment now and you saw what I've done to my plants, <laughs> unfortunately, there's a lot of that. But so to put fetuses in. And to have them talking is to anthropomorphize them. And that's dangerous because it, it, it's, it's just, it's just dangerous. But in a, I found it to be a worthy risk that, you know, and there are people who, when they're reading it for the first time are like, Oh, I, uh, what it's, you know, it's a shock to them. Um, But to me, it's part of, that this is like a fun ride of it's a, it's an amusement park play in which there's all sorts of wild things that are happening and that they're all dealing with things that are hard to talk about, but in ways that are absurd or um, fun or just straight on, you know, like there's a abortion provider who tells us what she does. She, she talks us through how she does um, a, uh, a surgical abortion And I wanted that because 
how else would we know? I knew because I went and followed a doctor around for a day and watched her perform abortions. And in doing so, I was like, this is balletic. She's incredibly gifted and graceful at her job in the same way that I watch the garbage people toss the garbage into the back of the truck. They do it beautifully. It has an arc. It doesn't miss. So people who are great at their jobs, I'm interested in. And this provider was great at her job. And I wanted to be able to have that exist in the play as well. So here's this play that I think is exciting and wonderful. And it's taken me, it it began as a three and a half hour piece. And it's now like a very tight 90 or so minutes. Took me like eight years to get it there. But I believe that this piece is right and is exactly what it's supposed to be. But name me one theater who's going to step up and produce it. This is a play that before it was even in 2016, it had a write-up in the New Yorker. But no one comes to me and says, hey, what's that? What's that abortion play you're working on? Can we see it? So the fear is I'm going to write something and it's never going to see the light of day. But I don't go into it that way. I think I'm going to write something and we're going to like, we're going to make it, we're going to see it. It's going to happen. And so, you know, the heartbreak comes later when you've done the work and when you have this thing that you think is worthy of being in the world. And the only way you're going to be able to get it into the world, as far as you can tell is, is by your own steam. Hmm. Which I think is, is an artist's uh, plate and, you know, challenge in, in almost every art form. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I love so much of what you said and I, I particularly love, you know, your, your response to Camille's question of how do you deal with the fear, which basically I interpret, you know, from what you said um, to be, you know, you said you do a lot of research and I, I think that, um, you know, so many actors that we interview that we, when we ask them, how do you deal with the fear of acting, of auditions, of, you know, that first day on set, um, they say preparation. And I think that, you know, it's kind of the same answer. You, you, you make sure you're prepared, you make sure you've done your work, you make sure you've done the research, your due diligence, and you don't have to feel afraid anymore, or at least not as afraid. I, I love that answer. Um, sadly, we're out of time. Uh, I feel like there's so many more things we could, we, I would love to hear from you. Um, yeah, of course, please. And Jen, can I Do add it. one more thing? I'm sorry. I've been, I've been doing this to you a lot lately, but I just, with everything that Winter said, um, I, I also just wanted to add on what you were saying about the fear and something that you said, I think that's really important to reiterate mm-hmm. is uh, know that you have a cause mm-hmm. that is almost greater than, than yourself, that you need to really show up for that cause. And I, I can tell you in terms of spare rib, just the fact that you decided to write something like that for the many, many women who have gone through abortions, it is going to be something just knowing they have an advocate outside of themselves will be a relief to them. Um, and I think that that, that is something um, that, that, that I think can serve a lot of mm-hmm. artists in, in that 
and that heartbreaking plight of of trying to get your voice out there, trying to be seen in in, in whatever stage you are at, um, and not knowing when or if or it will happen is just knowing that the cause that you're doing it for that greater cause and and all the work that you do really serves that purpose and, and we're very grateful. So I just wanted to to say that before we wrap up. Yeah. Well said. Um in closing I did have yeah. one I did have one answer to a question that do it. you asked ahead. And I just feel like it's worth the question was what do you wish you know now that you wish you had known when you were first yeah. beginning? Please. And um that is that it's going to be all right. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for having me on your podcast. You're welcome. Winter, will you in closing share with us um, if you have one, uh, a New Yorkism, something that you have noticed to be unique about New York City? Mm, I mean, I feel like I should just leave that to Fran Lebowitz because she's <laughs> clearly so good at it. Um, I mean, I stand by our, I stand by our pizza. There you go. Yes. Uh, yes. New York pizza. Cool. Um, I, I stand by the reality of our block by block uh, economic discrimination. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are definitely unique things about New York. <laughs> we contain multitudes everywhere. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going back to the first thing. New York is busy. New York is busy. New York is so busy. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, well, thank you. Thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. This has been this has been inspiring and thought provoking and um, helpful. So. I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks. Winter, if, if actors, I know you um, teach uh, a a writing workshop. If actors are interested in working with you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on my website, which is www.wintermiller.com. And there's a little sheet at the end where you, you fill in your name to contact me and that's, you can reach right out. And I love working with actors. I don't mind working with people who have never written before. I think that's a fun place to be or people who have been writing and are just not clear about where to go. Um, But the people I work with range from people who have never written before to people who um, have been through grad school and have a fair amount of success, um, but just need something. Um, So it's, I find it to be extremely fun and extremely gratifying. So if it's something that you're afraid of doing, um, you know, look me up. And if I'm not the right person for you, I will send you to someone who is the right person for you. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to Speak LA, the podcast. We want to be able to bring you more episodes like this one, but we can only do that with your support. So please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to Speak LA, the podcast. For more information on Speak LA, go to ispeakla.com. 
This episode of Speak LA the Podcast was sponsored by Actors Connection. Actors Connection offers free resources, including valuable online programs. For more information, go to actorsconnection.com and sign up for their e-blast today. Our sound engineer is the very talented Dan Leonard of homevoiceoverstudio.com. My name is Jen Jostin. And I'm Camille Thornton-Alson, and we are the founders of Speak LA. You can find us at ispeakla.com. See you next time. Bye-bye.